Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times. That it, with your 2023 WWE Crown Jewel Instant Analysis. That's right, getting over is back once again and normally we would be here just minutes after WWE Crown Jewel went off the air. This time we are here hours after it went off the air to break down everything that happened on WWE's penultimate premium live event, at least in terms of the main roster, for 2023. We have a ton to break down on today's show, and it is Saturday night. We want to make sure we get this into you as soon as possible, so we are not going to waste a lot of time off the top. First, as always, allow me to remind you that the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast is all about Defy. So please, folks. Stop being marks for yourselves and go back to being a mark for me. Go back to being marks for the Silver King Adam Silverstein, Vintage Chris Vanini, and the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. Please visit Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Leave some five-star ratings on Apple. Take a little extra time. Leave a five-star written review. If you do, we will read it live right here on the show. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for episode drops, news, analysis, highlights. For nights that have premium live events and pay-per-views, you get to vote in our pre- and post-show polls, and your opinions matter. We will discuss those later in this episode. Also, please hear on Getting Over, remember? I happen to love the number five. And I hope you do as well, because for $5 a month or 50 for the entire year, you can become an official Getting Overhead. Just visit buymeacoffee.com slash over. Sign up, you get bonus audio posts approximately four times a week. You also get exclusive news posts and so much more. Plus, your contributions directly support the financial future of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. Again, buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. Now, this is normally the part of the show where I would do two things. First, crack open a cold one. And second, welcome vintage Chris Vanini into the show. Unfortunately, Chris was on site at a college football game on Saturday, and because this is still a work day after all, I'm not cracking open a cold one. So we're going to have to save those for Survivor Series later this month. But at this point, it is time to get directly into your WWE Crown Jewel instant analysis. And let me kick it off with a take on the scene that we got on Saturday, let's call it afternoon. It was interesting. Uh, There was a huge jewel like in the Crown Jewel logo, that one hanging over the ring, which made it look pretty awesome. And the atmosphere was extremely colorful with purple, yellow, and green. It was an arena with an extremely high ceiling. I believe it's the third time that WWE has run this one. So it created a real interesting aesthetic throughout the entire show. And really, that's all I have to say. We're going to get right into uh, the match breakdown. A reminder for longtime listeners and a heads up for anyone who may be listening for the first time. We're going to break down these matches based on order of importance, not exactly match order. And because there was a go home uh, Smackdown show on Friday night, we do have some housekeeping to do in terms of the builds to some of these matches that we want to discuss before we break them down individually. But we will cover every single match on the show. We will have grades for every single match on the show. And at the end, we will discuss both our pre-show expectation grades and our final post-show grades for WWE Crown Jewels. So with that, let's go right to the main event, the undisputed WWE Universal Championship Roman Reigns against LA Knight. On SmackDown, LA opened the show saying Roman's reign was impressive, but he's doing a hostile takeover of his empire. Reigns introduced himself, reintroduced himself, and gave Knight credit for getting himself over in his absence. But he said what he is doing is cinema, and Knight is setting WWE back 
by cosplaying as a redneck version of his cousin, obviously The Rock. Knight said Reigns probably feels unbeatable, but he's not there to end something. He's trying to start a new era. Knight said Reigns is only a megastar because he has the title, but he is one without it. Uh, they got into like a bit of a shoving match. Nick Aldis and company came up, separated them. Heyman later told Aldis, there's going to be a ton of medical personnel that need to be on the scene Saturday because Reigns is going to straight up savage night. It was a really hot segment for a taped show. Some solid shots both ways. But what was most notable was Knight getting the upper hand for the second week in a row. My assumption going into Crown Jewel was what we normally talk about. The loser getting over on the go-home show, in this case, consecutive weeks on the go-home shows, uh, the other person will ultimately win. The interesting dynamic here was Knight completely won the promo battle in consecutive weeks, whereas Reigns presumably was going to be the one to actually win the wrestling portion of it, the match itself. Speaking of, let's go ahead and move to the match. The video package at the start was tremendous. I believe it began with a Dune reference. The pop for LA Knight was massive. It got real heated between them before the bell, but it started slow as most extended Reigns matches do. It was a yeah for Knight and a boo for Reigns on every strike. Reigns hit a Uranagi that Michael Cole called a rock bottom. Knight hit a neck breaker, but Roman countered his running the ropes deal with a Superman punch. LA leapfrogged a spear and hit his box jump superplex plus the elbow. Sokoa tried to come down the ramp, but was stopped by security. Jimmy Uso came out of the crowd, dragging Roman out of the ring for rest. Reigns hit Knight with a Superman punch off the distraction and speared him for a 2.9 false finish. Roman lifted him in the guillotine, but LA actually powered out three times. He hung Reigns in the top rope and hit BFT, but Jimmy threw Roman's leg on the bottom rope. Knight banged both their heads off the announce table. Uh, Reigns got run into the post by LA. Then he put Jimmy through the English announce table, only to get speared through the barricade and speared back inside the ring for the one, two, three in 20 minutes. Perhaps most interesting is that the BFT was fully protected, given the booking. Other than that, look, it was a quite typical Reigns booking. Slow start, picks up nicely, interference costs the babyface, Roman wins. My hope was there would be some wrinkle here to make it a little bit different, such as Knight actually getting the three count before the referee noticed the foot, or something of the sort. Not a dusty finish, but along the lines of doing something a little bit more creative and different than the standard. But in the end, Knight proved that he can compete on a main event level in WWE. And that is great for him long-term. It was also the most important development by far coming out of this match. 3.75 stars, B-plus is the grade. Reigns sold his ass off for Knight. And that's probably going to get LA even more over. It's going to give him promo material, most likely. But you do have to start asking yourself, at what point does Roman start winning clean again? Because he hasn't in either of his defenses since WrestleMania, and it's been a long time since Reigns actually felt like a dominant individual. It was probably the match against Matt Riddle, the last time he just won a match clean and was the dominant champion, and you said, oh yeah, that's the Roman Reigns. We're, we're still at a place right now where we cannot truly determine whether the WrestleMania 39 decision was the right one. But so far, seven months after that show, Reigns has done nothing with this title to justify his holding it for an entire year into WrestleMania 40. He's defended it two times. He's been involved in some tag team matches. The tag team matches were all way better than his singles defenses. And 
you just wind up with a championship reign that's being artificially extended. It had its endpoint, and they just didn't give it to us then. But again, as we've said from the beginning, if December rolls around and they start rebuilding Reigns and Cody and it's mega nuclear hot and they go into WrestleMania 40 and Cody wins the title off Roman, then you look at that and you say, okay, it was all worth it in the end. But to this point, seven months into this extra year of a title defense, it hasn't been worth it. And really, it's just been immensely frustrating because you have a guy who they're trying to tell you is dominant, but the problem is he doesn't dominate. He gets the same help every single time. And all these baby faces, you would think at some point, and they kind of did it at WrestleMania for Cody, but you would think at some point that like LA Knight would say, man, you know, I've been watching all these defenses and there's interference every single time. I'm going to get three or four people to have my back so that that doesn't happen this time. And maybe even though he has people that have his back, the chaos outside the ring still distracts him and he gets beat by Reigns. But at some point, they got to do something different because even though, look, Reigns has the presence, he has the promo, he has the character, the acting, all of that down. When it comes to the actual matches now, they just don't feel important because you know exactly how they're going to go. And WWE is going to need to fix that. What's going to be interesting is to find out whether he is at Survivor Series later this month in November. There are reports. I mean, he's not advertised for it. And reports are that he's not going to be on the show, which is astounding to me that he would miss a big four premium live event, especially considering how little he's worked. It might also mean that in like a four or five month span, he would wrestle one match, this one, to LA Knight before he eventually has a match at Royal Rumble. So that's a larger conversation, most likely for Tuesday's show. Vintage Chris Vanini will be there. We will have that conversation. And you'll also get all his quick takes about Crown Jewel on that episode. But I did want to spend a little bit of time talking about Roman Reigns right here. Let's move to the World Heavyweight Championship. Seth Rollins against Drew McIntyre. This opened the main card. McIntyre got major pops early. He also did the Ronaldo goal celebration, but production missed it, obviously. Then Drew caught a tope suicida, countering it into a belly-to-belly suplex toss outside. Uh, Rollins came back with a springboard flying senton and a springboard moonsault consecutively, plus a falcon arrow. Rollins then hit a superplex, but McIntyre countered the falcon arrow Uh, follow into a brain buster for a shoulder lift 2.9. Rollins back gave out, pulling McIntyre off the ropes. So he took a future shock DDT in another close fall. McIntyre did a standing spine buster into the top of the steel steps and a side slam into the ring apron. Rollins countered McIntyre into a pedigree for another arm lift 2.9. The referee was out of position to see it, but he still called it. Drew caught the stomp midair, hitting two full release suplexes and a neck breaker. Rollins countered Claymore with the super kick and hit the stomp for a 2.9 false finish. Obviously, he was frustrated after that. So he went for a Phoenix splash. McIntyre dodged completely and hit Claymore for a 2.99 false finish. That legit might have been 3.01. That's how close it was. Place came unglued. They were chanting one more time. Rollins again countered Claymore with the super kick. Then McIntyre missed another Claymore attempt. And Rollins hit a pedigree plus a stomp and a delayed cover to retain the title in 19 minutes. So undoubtedly here, this match right here, it was a banger and basically flawless with both guys executing at an extremely high level. I went 4.25 stars and an A. Working Rollins back sure makes it sound like it will eventually be his excuse for dropping the title. My lone frustration was the finish, which after the Claymore was entirely predictable how it would transpire. McIntyre looked strong in defeat, 
Rollins even stronger in victory. It also deviated a little bit from Seth's normal match flow, which made it better than usual as a watch. Still though, it really feels like a title change is needed here. And that made it interesting because after the bell, Damian Priest ran down with the Money in the Bank briefcase and a referee. He was about to cash in when suddenly Sami Zayn jumped out of the crowd back in his black hoodie. He shoved Priest, he stole the briefcase, and he ran into the crowd. And what was really cool about that is the fans absolutely love Sami. So they swarmed and surrounded him. That way, Damian couldn't go after him, which was a great visual and maybe one of the best things of the entire night. Commentary reminded that Zayn promised Monday that Judgment Day would not have power in WWE. McIntyre was also approached by Rhea Ripley backstage after this, and she kind of gave him a shrug and a look that was like, hey, you should have taken my help. So the positive here is I cannot remember a babyface getting another babyface's back like this without them being legitimately close friends in kayfabe. So that was a unique and creative piece of booking. The negative, of course, is that we're still getting more Sammy and Judgment Day this Monday on Raw and beyond. But as I said last Tuesday on our WWE podcast, that was to be expected given the larger feud should move into Survivor Series and hopefully be settled for good there. Regarding McIntyre, it sure seems like he might be their fifth, Judgment Day's fifth, for a Survivor Series match. Otherwise, there's not much point in running the storyline the way they have been. This loss, though, it needs to push McIntyre more in the heel direction, for sure. To be clear, I don't buy into these frustrations over the length of Rollins' title reign. It's typical, like, IWC wrestling fans being fickle. Every time Seth has success as a babyface, people immediately turn against him. He's been doing good work, okay? That said, it does feel like this was the third straight opponent who could have legitimately taken it off of him with it making perfect sense, only for Rollins to just ultimately retain once again. And it was the second of the three, Finn Balor being the first and now McIntyre, who the crowd was rooting for to win, despite being the more heel side of the match. That is not a protest against Rollins. It's just fans wanting something different. And it is frustrating. And look, they started the World Heavyweight Championship and they gave it to Rollins, they crowned him, and they're like, you're the guy to make this title relevant, and he has made it relevant. But now it is time to change the title because you already have a championship that doesn't change hands. And if you look at the larger scope of wrestling right now, okay, between Roman Reigns, Seth Rollins, Rhea Ripley in WWE, MJF in AEW, you're, these major champions, and obviously WWE is not at fault for what AEW does, but these major champions just ha are having these endless reigns where nothing is changing and nothing feels fresh. At some point, you gotta do something to make the product feel fresh. They did it with Cody Rhodes and Jey Uso winning the tag team titles, and then they immediately switched them back. They have a chance to freshen up the product with Rollins dropping the World Heavyweight Championship, but they just refuse to do it. I'm fine with Reigns keeping his title to WrestleMania, I'm fine with Ripley keeping her title to WrestleMania, though I do want Rhea to start defending it more one-on-one, -on, -one, on TV, legit title matches against opponents where she wins clean. But Rollins in the World Heavyweight Championship, that is the one that can be changed. It does really feel like it's gonna be Gunther ultimately taking it off Rollins, probably at WrestleMania, maybe at the Royal Rumble, and then they rematch at WrestleMania. That's another possibility. And it seems like that's the reason why he keeps beating all these other people. But as great as that would be for Gunther to take the title, 
guess what? He's currently also on an endless long reign as the Intercontinental Champion. And if that one continues going on longer and longer and longer, and then he wins the World Heavyweight Championship, then it's like, how long is that reign going to be? So they're going to have to figure this out sooner than later. And again, I had no problem with Rollins winning. I thought it was the match of the night. Let me be very clear. It just felt like an opportunity to do something different that passed them. And look, if McIntyre hasn't re-signed and his contract is ending in five months, then sure, makes all the sense in the world not to strap him up. But again, just looking at the progression of this, Balor, Shinsuke Nakamura, and now McIntyre, it was frustrating. Uh, Women's World Championship, Rhea Ripley defended against Raquel Rodriguez, Nia Jax, Shayna Baszler, and Zoe Stark in a fatal five-way match. Ripley got a special entrance where a bunch of Saudi Arabian men walked out in like full garb with cups that smoked. They stood as like a tunnel, and then she walked out. And look, I understand, trust me, guys wanting to be as close to Ripley as possible. But this entrance made no sense to the vast majority of people watching. I'm not saying everybody, but a vast majority. I had no idea what it was supposed to be or what it was supposed to convey. Commentary didn't help. They didn't explain it to us. I later learned it's a greeting of respect and hospitality, but I shouldn't have had to look that up. Ripley, though, looked like a megastar when she entered after. The women were all fully covered like usual. Commentary put over the women's division in WWE being stronger than ever, naming all the champions, Jade Cargill, all that stuff before the bell. Jax dipped out of the ring at the bell, but the women all kicked her into a German suplex by Baszler, who later got a double ankle hook submission on Ripley and Rodriguez, and also caught Jax in like half of a Kirafuda clutch simultaneously. It was a really cool spot. Jax nearly passed out until Stark broke it. Baszler then based a super duper plex on everyone but Rodriguez. Then Rhea and Raquel got into it a little bit. Stark hit an Escalera splash onto them and Baszler at ringside. Uh, she also hit a springboard dropkick and Z360 on Ripley, only for Jax to break the fall. Rodriguez then took Jax off the ropes for a Tahana bomb, which was immensely impressive. Ripley deadlifted Baszler into Riptide. After a broken fall, Rodriguez went in to cover Shayna. Uh, Rhea was trying to like manipulate Zoe on the ropes to get advantage. Ripley saw the opening paused with Zoe in her arms, whether that was on purpose or not, or we were supposed to see that or not. I can't tell you for sure. But she did hit Avalanche Riptide on Stark into the other two women, covering Baszler, who was at the base of it, for the win and title retention in 11 minutes. And I thought the finish was rock solid. It's also real difficult to do a five-way match. And to be able to put a finish together of that quality, I thought was a big thumbs up. It's always difficult to do a five-way match. And what failed this one is there were four completely ground-based women without enough variety to create like a string of exciting moments. Jax was totally irrelevant here, other than being the one taking that to Hanabam. Stark was easily the MVP of the entire thing. And you can say, given she hit her finisher on Ripley, that maybe she deserves one of those title matches I was talking about on Raw sooner than later. I'm still going to be at 3.5 stars and a B for this. After all, we did ultimately get <laughs> big meaty man slapping me. <laughs> and there's no doubt those ring posts absolutely needed to be fortified. <laughs> Reinforce the ring post. The beat's going to be flying tonight, gentlemen. There were also some notable spots. The Tahana bomb on Jax, crazy impressive. The finish, the avalanche riptide, awesome looking. Ultimately, the goal was to have Ripley look as dominant as possible coming out of this. That was achieved. I still don't understand the entrance, but anyway, now we are gonna wonder, hey, what are they gonna do here? 
Is this going to be a Survivor Series team of all the Raw women together? Uh, is Ripley going to be able to move on to a worthwhile singles feud? Stark making a lot of sense given that she took out Trish Stratus and now, you know, basically hit Ripley with her finisher here. We're going to find all that out Monday, but I would just love for her to be involved in something fresh. Go ahead, let Raquel Rodriguez and Nia Jax have a feud. Give me Stark and Ripley here. Mix in Baszler at some point after that. And I think we'll be eaten pretty well with the Raw Women's Division going forward. The WWE Women's Championship, EO Sky defending against Bianca Belair. We'll start with SmackDown. Uh, Belair fought Bailey During a backstage interview, EO and Bailey attacked Bianca only to quickly be separated. Damage Control later laughed at taking out Belair, with Bailey joking that she could fight for the title at Crown Jewel instead. EO was not amused. Aldis then came up informing them the damage control is barred from the ringside. EO told Bailey that she could handle it with a sly grin. Bianca was back in her bright colors with the lips everywhere. Bailey put Belair into the post with a knee to her head. Belair then used her strength to save a nearly botched superplex. Bailey gripped Bianca's hair and ran her head first into the post again before hitting an elbow drop. Bailey grabbed Belair off the apron, trying for a power bomb into the announce table, but Bianca avoided her into the post, hitting a pendulum splash outside. Bailey countered KOD but grabbed the braid again, so Belair whipped her right in the stomach and hit KOD to win an extended main event. Belair then stared into the camera and put Bailey through the announce table with KOD, telling EO it was for her. This was easily the best match on SmackDown and probably the best that Bailey has looked in the ring in eons. Of course, I could have done without the post match. It didn't really accomplish much of anything other than making Bailey look bad, but this was the obvious result given Bianca was in the title match and we got a good piece of business on the go home show. As I'm going to explain Tuesday, the crowd was largely dead for the second taping of SmackDown. That hurt this match from being perceived as hot as it actually was, but this was great work from both of them and it was really good to see Bailey uh, going at that level because she hasn't exactly been doing that for a long time. So let's move to Crown Jewel. EO worked Bianca's knee, hitting a dropkick while in the Tree of Woe, and then put her in a stretch muffler. Belair came back with a perfect release belly-to-back suplex. Then she flipped EO backwards off her shoulders for a front slam. Bailey didn't come out with EO, but she did distract late, and there will probably be plenty of takes about the silver bodysuit that she wore. EO hit a moonsault outside and deftly slid out of the ring in Belair's grasp, running her neck into the ropes. Bianca caught her flying for a standing glam slam. Then Bailey distracted again, so she splashed her. Belair ducked an EO charge. Sky accidentally laid out Bailey at ringside, but she distracted Belair again, Bailey did. So Bianca lifted her into a KOD, only for Kyrie Sane to run in, save Bailey, backfist Belair in the face, and hit a jumping knee on her into the post. Bianca slid into the ring at 9.9, and EO immediately hit a moonsault to retain the title in 17 minutes. Kyrie then joined in attacking Bianca after the bell, hitting a perfect insane elbow to end it, and Bailey looked completely stunned at all of this. So let's start with the match. It was going real hot until all the distractions started, and that obviously takes away from the overall impact of the wrestling. If this was allowed to finish as it was rolling, no matter the result, really, you're talking about an A-level match, but we just never got like a finishing sequence of note, even like false finishes, and Belair was almost overprotected to a degree in the loss. Still better than Bianca winning, of course, and we've talked about the implications of her losing here and possibly having another opportunity coming up later this month in December or in January, but nevertheless, in terms of what we got Saturday, 3.5 stars and a B for the match. 
I loved Kyrie's return. The lack of crowd reaction was disappointing, but she came in unexpectedly. She caught Bianca with two big moves and wound up hitting her finisher. Plus, she was no longer the pirate princess. She looked like an absolute badass. The storyline aspect of it is immensely intriguing as well. You have Io turning to Kyrie, perhaps, because she's learning she can't really trust Bailey in damage control. She needs someone who's actually going to look out for her as the number one. Bailey, she's been better about that of late, but there have still been those moments like we saw on Friday. What was also interesting is that Kyrie saved Bailey at the beginning when you would think she wouldn't want to do that. And I'll tell you why in a second. I could absolutely see them doing something where they add Asuka and become a heel trio with Bailey turning babyface. And I'm almost positive that on Tuesday's podcast, I said Bailey badly needs to turn babyface. This might be the moment that they do it. They could possibly also do it where, you know, EO is like, hey, damage control is as much as mine as it is yours. I want Kyrie to be part of it. So she is part of it. And then they both turn on Bailey. Don't forget, back when Kyrie left, and this is what I was just referring to, Bailey was the one to take her out. There are a lot of interesting directions they can go with this. Most disappointing were two things. First, the crowd reaction to the entire match, both women's matches, really, but also to Kyrie, not really knowing who she was. They couldn't see her initially. Once the camera zoomed in on her face, there was a pop, but it was relatively muted. Regardless, it was absolutely the wrong decision to return her here, period. Think about the reaction that Damage Control got at SummerSlam two years ago, and then consider the reaction that Kyrie Sane got here, night and day. My second issue was the camera work. And yes, you can say that for any WWE show or any individual match, but it was horrific here. I actually felt nauseous watching this match. It was zoomed in ridiculously close on the wrestlers. It was way too close up. There were way too many camera cuts and it just felt unnecessarily chaotic. The other women's match, the Fatal Five Way, it wasn't as bad as this, but it was also similarly bad. And I didn't have any issues with the other matches, which makes me wonder whether they were trying this for the women to make it feel more violent or something, but I don't know. I have not spoken about WWE camera work in a long time, especially like the cuts and the zoom-ins and all that. But on this show, it was extremely noticeable for me, again, especially in this match. Let's move to the United States Championship. Rey Mysterio defending against Logan Paul on SmackDown. They did a weigh-in. This was done away from the ring with a setup like a real combat sports fight, except rather than like build it out in a real way with media and a ton of cameras and all that, there were just really tight shots of cameramen with fake shutter sounds. Paul had a 38-pound advantage. They talked some trash going face-to-face. Logan tapped Ray on the top of the head, so Mysterio slapped him. And then Logan threw a right that took out a security guard. Ray bopped him on the head with the microphone. The final few seconds of this was actually pretty fun, and it saved it from disaster, but I largely hated it. It was just so fake and second-rate it seemed like something Impact would do. And I'm not trying to shit on Impact in any way. I'm just saying it didn't seem like a production level that WWE would put together. They could have easily made this better. And it also didn't enhance the match at all. It was largely unnecessary. So let's move to the match. Uh, Logan drove an ATV around the sand for some reason. Then he drove it down the street and onto the stage for his entrance. Paul hit a nice tilt-to-roll backbreaker plus a big warrior uh, running frog splash early. Mysterio came back with a tope suicida, flying seated senton, and springboard moonsault. Logan hit a buckshot lariat, but Ray countered the loaded punch into a crossface. Mysterio was way short on a springboard moonsault and legitimately would have landed 
smack dab on the top of his head. But Logan Paul saved him. He ran up and caught him before he hit the canvas. Honestly, it was the move of the match because it could have been an utter disaster. But then Logan hit the real move of the match, an avalanche fallaway slam moonsault. Mysterio countered the Eddie Guerrero tribute frog splash. Paul blocked 619. Ray then countered him off the ropes with a sunset flip powerbomb, falling with code red for a false finish. One of Logan's crew ran in. They snuck him brass knuckles. Ray, though, ran him into the post and the knuckles flew outside the ring. So the dude crawled around the ring to grab them, only for Santos Escobar to hop the barricade and stop him. But Escobar, as he was chasing after this guy, stupidly put the knuckles back on the ring apron. Logan got bumped into 619 position, but he grabbed the knucks. He ate the 619, but he slugged Mysterio flying off the springboard for the sudden victory to become the new United States champion. Paul went over to Mysterio after the bell, saying he did what he had to do. He respected him. He called him a legend. Mysterio shot back that Logan knew exactly what he did, obviously cheating. So the expected result, pretty much the expected finish as well. Why Escobar would leave the knucks on the ring rather than put them in his pocket when he's running after the guy, it is stupid as hell unless we learn Friday or in the next couple of Fridays that this was purposeful and Escobar turned on Mysterio. And it certainly might have been purposeful. It did make for an interesting finishing sequence, which took us on more of a ride than it otherwise would have been if he just got the knucks, punched him in the face, and that was it. I almost to a degree wish Logan beat Ray clean, like just caught him in a pinning combination or took advantage of a mistake or something like that. It felt cheap for him to win the title this way, especially given he beat Ricochet in the exact same fashion, but it was still a damn good match. 3.75 stars, B+. This definitely had a range potential, but it never got there. The Logan move was the right call. We've discussed it extensively here. The promotion alone is gonna be worth it, but this guy can go. He's a hated heel. There's various stories they can tell. My only hope is that he's mostly on a full-time schedule because SmackDown already has an absentee champion. So you can't take both of your men's singles champions and have them just not be on the show on a week-to-week basis. Also, you can bet your ass that the boys in the back gave Logan props for that save that I mentioned. It, it, it was really, that that's like a veteran move and he was able to do that and protect Rey Mysterio, a legitimate legend in his own right. That's big money move for him. And I loved the post-match moment, which really made Logan come off like a smarmy piece of shit. And you know what? Bonus shout out to his friend who gave him the knucks. He actively tried to avoid being detected by the referee, which is something a lot of wrestlers who interfere could really learn from. There are only two people who did that in this uh, show and, and recently in WWE. That guy, whose name I don't know, and Kyrie, who did it similarly uh, in the segment we just discussed. I also thought it was pretty funny the way he was crawling around the ring. So that guy did get a mini pop from me. One other note, with this title change, Rollins remains the only babyface champion on the main roster. You have Reigns, Ripley, EO, Gunther, Logan, Judgment Day, and then Chelsea Green and Piper Niven. So, I mean, when you talk about like repetitiveness, I know we're getting into WrestleMania season. I know WrestleMania is the time where you do a lot of title changes. You make a ton of babyface champions. You pop the crowd. You do all that. But if you're going to have eight main roster titles like this, you cannot have seven heel champions. It makes it feel like 
everyone is fighting all these people and no one is ultimately getting over. I understand that like the Chad Gable Gunther thing may be transpiring soon. I realize that again, Cody and Jay were just recently tag team champions, but they're not anymore. And that's not currently the case. So just something I wanted to mention. Uh, John Cena fought Solo Sokoa on SmackDown. There was a face-to-face segment. Paul Heyman said not to blame them or Reigns for ending Cena's career Saturday. Sokoa grabbed the mic asking why Heyman was wasting his breath when they were there to talk to Cena. Sokoa told Cena that Reigns gave him orders to let Cena say goodbye to the fans before he takes his voice. Cena put on a hoarse voice, almost like he was starting to lose it from the first Samoan spike. He said we waited a year for Sokoa to speak only to just say that. Then he said he only had a job in WWE due to his cousin, and he was a bargain basement Taz ripoff. Reference Jones over here. For someone who hasn't gotten many chances to speak in his career, I thought Sokoa did well, but Cena absolutely hammered him with a couple of lines. Solid go-home build. Uh, The crowd sang Cena's theme during his entrance at Crown Jewel, just like they did in NXT a few weeks ago. Really nice moment. Cena avoided a Samoan spike countering into an STF that Sokoa escaped. Solo then hung John in the Tree of Woe, hitting a running headbutt into him. Cena again ducked the spike and went on his rally with a five-knuckle shuffle. Sokoa countered attitude adjustment into a Samoan drop. Then Cena countered a third spike attempt into a rock bottom. Sokoa next countered AA into spinning Solo. Cena countered a fourth spike into an STF for a rope break. Sokoa then nailed the spike out of nowhere, like flying kind of. Then he hit two more, didn't cover. Cena's gasping for air. Sokoa then hits a fourth, Still won't cover. Finally, he lifts Cena up basically by the hair, whatever he has left, kind of held him in his arm and hit seven spikes in a row, 11 total for the one, two, three. Cena then got a standing ovation from the fans as he walked out after the bell. Not only was Sokoa over Cena, squeaky clean, a surprise for me, the finish was an utter shock. It actually was to the point that it felt unnecessary to go that far. Though obviously the idea was for Cena to be completely written off so he can go back to Hollywood with Sokoa getting the biggest win of his career in dominant fashion over a legend. It almost feels like this is headed for a WrestleMania rematch where Cena finally picks up that win for the first time in however many days it'll be by that point, you know, 2,200 days or however long. It it just kind of feels like that's where we're headed. This was hardly the most exciting match, but I also believe it was better than people are giving it credit for being, largely because it was more about the story than the wrestling. Three stars, B minus. Cody Rhodes fought Damian Priest. Priest attacked before the bell and hit the reckoning on Rhodes into the announce table. Cody came back with crossroads in the ring. Balor distracted so JD McDonough could run him, but he got quickly taken out. Priest took advantage with South of Heaven. Then Dominic Mysterio came down with a chair only to get blindsided by Jey Uso with a super kick. Jey super kicked Balor and McDonough and all three scurried away because he had a chair, which I always find silly. Cody caught Damian with the Cody Cutter and then a bionic elbow, plus a flying Cody cutter off the top rope, all for a false finish. Priest made a short run, but Cody came back with three consecutive crossroads for the win. This went as expected as well. Very much a raw main event on a PLE. Tons of interference for the third straight match on the show. Priest needing to take three crossroads definitely protected him, but I hate when Cody does that, and it shouldn't take three of them to beat Priest. What's it going to take to beat Roman Reigns? Ten? They did inject life back into the crowd here, but I'm at 3.25 stars and a B, and you can tell by the short kind of breakdown, there wasn't that much to this. Sami Zayn fought JD McDonough on the kickoff show. JD caught Sami flying with a perfect shotgun dropkick to the upper chest. McDonough had an insane bruise on his lower abdomen. It was actually kind of concerning. 
He caught Zane uh, with the Spanish fly. Sammy came back with a Huluva kick, but actually used the blue Thunderbomb as his finisher to get the win. Crowd legitimately erupted for him and then serenaded him after the bell. Smarter kickoff show match than I actually gave it credit for being in the ultimate preview. Zane is obviously super over there. And McDonough was the perfect antagonist who bumped his ass off for him. Talk about like whipping a crowd into a frenzy. There was no better way to do that than this to start the show. I've always liked the blue thunderbomb more than the Huluva kick as a finisher. So I really hope that sequence is a permanent change. I also happen to like the pop-up powerbomb better than the stunner, but I think Kevin Owens Friday on SmackDown used the pop-up powerbomb as a direct setup for the stunner, and that's fine. If both of them kind of go in that direction, it'll be an improvement for both of them. Uh, The match was solid across the board. Certainly not the best either could do. It was a kickoff show. It wasn't a big feature match on the card. 3.25 stars and a B for this as well. I should also note before we kind of move on to the grades, there was more propaganda on this show than usual for these Blood Money in the Sand events. WWE also announced they're going to do this huge like WWE museum site there. And I guess it's opening, did they say January 2024? So just a couple months. There was also a Miz TV segment where Miz welcomed a Saudi Arabian actor who was apparently a huge star and in one of his movies, like the character or TV shows, the character wants to be a WWE wrestler. So it kind of all connected together. Miz got babyface pops for this. Grayson Waller interrupted as the heel, and he changed the entire set to the Grayson Waller effect from Miz TV while they were all there, which was pretty funny. But the actor said that he preferred Miz to Waller. Then he tried to fight, but got kicked in the stomach by Waller. Miz let the guy get a big kick on Waller and then hit skull crushing finale to end it. Or so I thought, because the guy followed up with a people's elbow. I gotta tell you, he didn't do too bad. Dude had a lot of charisma, so credit to him for making it work. And based on the crowd response, it seems like the people knew him and liked it, and this probably is big over there. So the separate propaganda stuff was one thing. This just seemed like it was spotlighting a local celebrity, and in that case, I had no problem with it whatsoever. And again, the crowd popped forward. It was also a nice break during the show. Wasn't my favorite thing, certainly not, but yeah, it wasn't that harmful, and it helped The Miz continue that babyface trajectory that we saw really get started this past Monday on Raw. So with that, let's move to the grades portion of the show. First, a reminder when it comes to the pre-show expectation grades. So Chris, who of course is not here to defend himself, had an A grade for the expectation. I was at an A minus and you, the listeners, checked in 49% A, 39% B, 10% C, 1% DF, which averages out to a 89.4, which is a B plus. So all of you had lower expectations for the show than both of us, which I don't want to say is the first time that ever happened, but it might've actually been the first time that's ever happened. So again, Chris A, me A minus, all of you B plus. In terms of the post-show grades, now normally I let Chris go first, but since he's not here, I'm going to read your grade first. You guys checked in 16% A, 55% B, 17% C, 12%, D to F that averages out to an 83 or a flat B. I'm not shocked at all to see a bunch of B's and C's, but 12% D to F does not make a shred of sense to me. You cannot grade a show, a D or an F, unless there's legitimately terrible results, really bad wrestling injuries. I mean, there has to be things that are truly insulting for a premium live event or a pay-per-view to be a D or an F. And that absolutely did not happen 
at Crown Jewel. But I do agree that the average of a B is correct. That is my grade as well. I'm probably a little bit higher at like 85, maybe 84, but I'm definitely higher than an 83. It was an overall enjoyable show. My biggest issue is that WWE had done a really solid job making these Blood Money in the Sand events come across like regular, meaningful premium live events. And while the match card told us this was one of those, the results really didn't. And the show itself overall, it was rather boring to me, I guess is probably the best way to put it. I'm not saying that expected results are a bad thing because as you all know, sometimes predictable things are good. But really everything, my lone exception uh, being the John Cena and Solo Sokoa finish, but that wasn't even surprising, obviously. But everything went according to my expectation. Uh, the right people largely won. There was one title change. It's another heel taking the title. The Roman Reigns finish was exactly the same as all the others. Io Sky retained the title again and didn't necessarily look great doing it because she needed help in order to do it. And, you know, Rhea Ripley did come out as a star, but that match wasn't necessarily received as well as it probably would have been here in the United States. So, you know, top to bottom, this certainly did not feel like the original Blood Money in the Sand shows by any means, but it also didn't necessarily live up to the higher standards that the more recent ones had delivered. So, you know, I'm not here to say that I was disappointed by this show, but being a Saturday afternoon at the beginning of November, in the middle of football season, you know, to take time away to watch this while all that was happening, it I didn't feel like it was as much worth my time as I would have many other WWE premium live events. And we're also talking about kind of back-to-back, Fastlane and Crown Jewel, both relatively disappointing compared to expectation. It's still a B show. That doesn't mean it's bad. It doesn't mean that WWE's falling off a cliff or anything like that. But you have to remember, they were on a streak of mega hot shows. I mean, dating back to, I want to say November, but probably even October 2022. Um, But between uh, Survivor Series, we had the War Games, and then we had obviously Royal Rumble, Elimination Chamber was insane. WrestleMania was incredible. Backlash was a great surprise in Puerto Rico. Once we got past that, and, you know, SummerSlam was really good, and there, there were other shows that were solid across the board. But ever since Backlash, you know, it's tailed off a little bit. But really, over the last two shows, um, Fastlane and Crown Jewel, I've been less than impressed with what they've given us. It is football season. That is pretty damn normal that this happens. But I really want to see business pick up in a significant way on TV starting Monday. I want Survivor Series to absolutely bang, and they need to be putting on high-quality TV through December. That way, the road to WrestleMania really kicks off the right way in January. But folks, that was it for this edition of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast, your WWE Crown Jewel instant analysis, a reminder of what is still to come here on the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. We will be back Tuesday with our next WWE show. We will talk fallout from Crown Jewel, Vintage Chris Vanini will offer his opinions. I'll probably give a second look on some things that I get a little bit more time to uh, review. Obviously, there's still a lot of stuff that happened on SmackDown we haven't spoken about and the entirety of Monday Night Raw. All of that will go down on our Tuesday WWE episode. And then we'll also have a show Thursday next week talking NXT and AEW. I appreciate all of you joining us for this edition of Getting Over. On the way out, some quick reminders. First, this 
podcast. It's all about Defy. So please remember to leave some five-star ratings for us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. On Apple, take a little extra time, leave a five-star written review. If you do, we will read it live right here on the show. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for episode drops, news, analysis, highlights, all of that good stuff. And you also get the opportunity to vote in polls just like the ones you heard around pay-per-views and premium live events. Our DMs are open. You can also tweet at us questions, comments for the show. When we have more time, we do include those as well. Please also remember, I happen to love the number five. And I hope you do as well, because for $5 a month or 50 for the entire year, you can become an official Getting Overhead. Just visit buymeacoffee.com slash Getting Over. Sign up. You'll get bonus audio. You will get news posts and you will financially support Getting Over. Again, buymeacoffee.com slash Getting Over. That is it tonight for the Silver King. It is officially time for me to sign off and leave you with just three final words. Bye for now.